Let us uh, open our Bibles to the book of Ephesians, chapter 6. This morning, our meditations will be on the second half of verse 14. And I hope uh, there is no question in your mind as to what we are all about. We're about one thing. We're about Christ. We're about the Lord Jesus. And uh, that's really all we have and all we have to offer as a church is for you to lift your eyes to him. And so I hope there's no doubt in your heart and mind as to what we are about. Let's read verse 14. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. That is our focus for this morning, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Several years ago, while we were living in California, and you probably know by now, most of my illustrations come from California. I was driving my car around the town where we lived. As I was driving, I went by a building that uh, was quite unique. It caught my eyes. Then I, I noticed that it wasn't just any building. It was a Masonic lodge. I'm sure most of you have heard of the Freemasons. But then something really caught my eyes, even more so than the building itself. Engraved in one of the outside walls of the building, I read the following words, and I quote, making good men better. At that point, I had to park my car. Making good men better. That started me off on a journey to learn more about Masons. Soon enough, I felt the need to address the Freemasonry from the pulpit as I was preaching through the letter of 1 John. Little did I know that many of the people listening to that sermon had been highly influenced by the Masons and that even some of the leadership had been deeply involved with them. Suffice it to say, the events that unfolded after that day were very, very interesting. Fun times, indeed. I bring this up to your attention this morning because I want to take that little sentence, making good men better, and since we're talking about spiritual warfare, I want to do war against that little sentence. My hope is that by the end of the sermon, you will have the absolute conviction that men are not good. And that only Jesus Christ is good. And that your very life, your very life depends on him. If you are a Christian, I hope this truth will be cemented even further down into your heart and your mind. And I hope that by the end of this sermon, you will love Christ Jesus even more deeply and that your need for and gratitude toward him will grow stronger and that you will see him for what he truly is, precious and all sufficient. On the other hand, my friend, if you are not a Christian, if you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ as the only way of forgiveness and salvation, I hope this morning that you will see your desperate need of him and that you will run to Christ in faith. 
Today, we're considering the issue of righteousness as it pertains to spiritual warfare and the Christian life. Paul calls it the breastplate of righteousness. Now, he tells us to put on the breastplate of righteousness, which belongs to the armor of God. Obviously, the key word is what? Yes, whispers. That's, that's what I tell my wife every morning. If nobody says anything, you say it. <laughs> righteousness. Nah, that's the key word. Now, in order to properly understand what Paul is talking about, first, we need to take a, a bird's eye view at the concept of righteousness presented in scripture. It is, after all, one of the most critical teachings in all of the Bible and certainly one of the most consequential for our lives. It is not an exaggeration to say that if you and I misunderstand the biblical teaching on righteousness, our very lives are at risk, our very souls. Therefore, our first main question, if you're following along in the notes, our first main question this morning is this, what is righteousness? What is righteousness? When Paul talks about the breastplate of righteousness, what does he have in mind? Let me ask you, are you a righteous person? Let's find out. What is righteousness? What I mentioned about the Freemasons is relevant to our considerations this morning for the following reason. The few words that were engraved upon the outside wall of that building, namely, making good men better, reveals the type of religious thinking that Jesus firmly opposed throughout his entire ministry. It is the type of religious thinking that actually condemns people to hell. And it has a name. It's, it is called self, Micah, okay, you see, it works every time. Self-righteousness. The best illustration I know of self-righteousness is found in the gospel of Luke chapter 18. You don't have to go there, but here's Luke's introduction to a parable spoken by the Lord Jesus. And this is what Jesus said. He, meaning Jesus also told this parable to some, listen to this, who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Now that's a big clue as to what self-righteousness is. But then the Lord Jesus explains exactly what he means when he reveals the heart of a self-righteous person in the prayer of the Pharisee. Here's the parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee, and the other, a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, and here's the heart of a self-righteous person. Listen to this. God... I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. That's self-righteousness. In short, self-righteousness is the one who sees himself as a good person based on their own merits. Or as the Lord Jesus said, those who trust in themselves. Self-righteousness is self-trust. And it condemns. It condemns. Well then, if this is self-righteousness, what is true biblical righteousness? 
I want to give you a threefold view of what sermon, what righteousness is. And you can follow along in your sermons. These are the first three sub points. The first point is this, the first angle from which we need to understand righteousness is this original righteousness, original righteousness, what we lost in Adam, original righteousness, what we lost in Adam, humanity in its original state as represented in the public person of Adam was created. Good. You will remember the words of God after he created Adam and Eve. What did he say? And God saw everything that he had made, including Adam and Eve. And behold, it was what? Not just good. It was very good. Adam and Eve in their original state, they were good. This is what theologians have referred to as original righteousness. This is what um, I mean by original righteousness. The built in natural disposition to love and obey God, which Adam and Eve possessed in their pre-fall state. The built in natural disposition to love and obey God. Adam and Eve were created in true righteousness. This is at least in part what it means that Adam and Eve were created in the image of God. The purpose of the first two human beings ever created was precisely to image or to reflect God to the rest of creation. In other words, the purpose as the only creatures created in the image of God was to be a display of God to the rest of creation, to be representatives of God on earth. And this representation of God included, of course, holiness and righteousness, true goodness, because that's what God is. God is righteous. Therefore to be created in his image means that those creatures will display his righteousness to the world. This is what Adam and Eve had. They were created with this intrinsic disposition to love and obey God and live in perfect harmony with one another. The stain of sin was not yet present in their hearts. Their righteousness was reflective of God's own righteousness. Nonetheless, we know the story in what has come down as the saddest and most destructive moment in human history. Adam and Eve lost their original righteousness due to their sin. They disobeyed God. And now everything about Adam and Eve is marred by this evil reality. We know as sin. Now, why should we care? Why should we care about Adam? We were, we were not even there. Here's why we care. A moment ago, I said that Adam was a public person. And I'm using the word public in theological terms, which means representative. Representative. Adam was the head, as it were, of all humanity. His actions before God stood as the actions of all humanity, including you, including me. And now instead of us being righteous, we are now constituted sinners. We no longer have this built in intrinsic disposition to love and obey God, God and to live in harmony with each other. In fact, experience tells us that the opposite is true. My brothers and sisters, the greatest evidence that we are indeed fallen creatures, unrighteous and sinful and evil from birth is that we were created for God's glory. And yet we live for our own glory. 
We were created to enjoy God as our ultimate and sufficient source of life and joy and peace. And yet we seek satisfaction in worthless pursuits. Let me give you a perspective. Only a fallen human being can find joy and satisfaction in vices such as sexual immorality, covetousness, envy, while at the same time being indifferent to God. You see, what Adam's disobedience created was not only people who now lack righteousness, but people who actually love darkness. Let's face it. Apart from the miracle of God, that's what we are. We are lovers of self. We are lovers of darkness. We are lovers of pleasure. This presents us with the most fundamental problem ever faced in the entire existence of humanity. What is that fundamental problem? It is this. Freemasons are wrong. Their desire to make good men better is rooted in the faulty notion that men are good and that they can be righteous. But that is not the biblical teaching, not even close. I would like to ask the Mason who came up with that statement, have you heard of Adam's fall? Don't you know that apart from divine grace, your heart is truly wicked? My friend, out of love, I have to tell you, out of love, I have to tell you that the biggest danger to your soul is failure to see your own depravity, which you inherited from Adam. The Masons are wrong and fatally so. Any man walking right now who thinks of himself as good and who trusts in himself as righteous is walking himself into divine wrath. So this morning, if you're trusting in yourself, I have only one word for you. Repent. Step one. But I must also follow that up with these words. Stop looking to yourself. And start looking to the Lord Jesus. Your wickedness, your sin are in fact the dark backdrop against which the light of the Lord Jesus shines the brightest. If this morning you know yourself to be a desperate sinner, undeserving of forgiveness. And if you know yourself to be lost, I have great news. I have great news. The best news you've ever heard. Here's what Jesus said. Please consider the amazing words of Jesus filled with absolute divine logic. Here you go. Those who are well. Those who are well have no need of a physician. Who would have thought? But those who are sick. I have not come. To call the righteous, but what? Sinners to repentance. Do you realize that if you see yourself as a righteous person, Jesus has nothing to offer to you? 
Did you hear what Jesus said? The precondition for receiving true righteousness is the recognition that you don't have it. Which leads me to the second angle of righteousness that I want to bring to your attention. The first one was what? Original righteousness, what we lost in Adam. The second one is this, imputed righteousness, what we receive in Christ. Imputed righteousness, what we receive in Christ. For our family devotions, we have been going through the book of Genesis. And a recurring, recurring theme that is, brought us, that is brought up as we go through the book is the utter depravity of the main characters. Have you noticed that? All of them. All of them. Jacob, even Joseph, all of them. Beginning with Cain, all the way down to Jacob and his sons, they were all corrupted by sin, every single one. Why? Because of Adam. Adam's first act of disobedience unleashed corruption in all of humanity. The only exception. The only exception being one man. One man. A Jewish man who did not inherit Adam's corruption. He has what we don't. You know why? Because this man was born of a virgin. Therefore, the sinful seed of Adam, which would have come through Joseph, was not transmitted to him. The Bible tells us that this man was conceived by the Holy Spirit in absolute perfection with no stain of sin. His name is Jesus. The righteous one of God. What did Jesus do? Well, I want to give you a summary. He basically came to do three things. First, he came to accomplish what no one else could. Then he came to receive upon himself what everyone else deserved. And third, he came to terminate the reign of death. What did Jesus accomplish that no one else could? We know the answer, right? He's the only man in human history. Whoever walked the earth, who lived a perfectly righteous life. In fact, do you want to know a truly good man? A truly good man. Consider the life of Jesus. Let me give you a summary of the life of Jesus out of his own words, as recorded by John in the gospel of John chapter eight, verse 29. Here's what Jesus said about himself. Listen to this. I always do what is pleasing to the father. That's what Jesus said about his own life. I always do what is pleasing to God. I would like to challenge. I would like to challenge any Mason, any Mormon, any Jehovah's witness, any Roman Catholic, and any person in this room or anywhere in the world to be able to say the same words about himself without being called a liar. Jesus is a picture of true and perfect righteousness. He loved and obeyed God every single day of his life for he was filled with the spirit. What the first Adam failed to do in the perfect garden of Eden, Jesus, the second Adam accomplished in a corrupted world of sin. Jesus lived righteously. The lingering question then is this, if Jesus was a righteous man who always pleased God in every way, why did he die on the cross? Well, consider the story of Abraham and Isaac. 
One day the Lord told Abraham to take his son Isaac, whom he loved, and sacrifice him on Mount Moriah. Abraham went up to the mountain, and as he was about to slaughter Isaac, his son, God stopped him. And what happened next? God provided a ram, and the ram died in Isaac's place. Isaac stands as the picture of what all of us deserve, namely death. The ram provided by God, however, stands as a picture of what Jesus did. He took our place. He died in our stead. Why? Here's the answer. Don't miss this. Jesus is the second Adam. Jesus, like the first Adam, was a public person. Meaning, Jesus came representing a people, namely his church. All believers, throughout all of history, everywhere in the world. And God the Father took all their sins, all those sins ever committed, past, present, and future. And he imputed those sins upon Jesus. What does that mean? What does it mean that God imputed our sins upon Jesus? It means, it means this. It means that God the Father, listen to this, treated Jesus as though he was guilty of all the sins of the people that Jesus came to represent, even though he was righteous in every way. Let me give you the amazing news of the gospel. Amazingly, God the Father treated his own son on the cross as though he lived my life. This is the amazing news of the gospel. God gave Jesus what I deserve. What does that have to do with us? Everything, consider the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Jesus we might become what? The righteousness of God, that we might become what we were not. Here's the paraphrased version. God treated his own perfect son as though he lived our life of sin and therefore crushed him on the cross so that we could be treated as though we lived Jesus's life of righteousness and therefore be forgiven by the cross. The righteousness I need to stand before the father has been imputed to me, credited to me by God in Christ. This is the work of Jesus, the second Adam, which he did for us through his life, his death and his resurrection. Notice that this is what Jesus did outside of us, for us, for us. And this leads us to our third consideration of righteousness, which is this practical righteousness, practical righteousness, what we are becoming by the spirit what we are becoming by the spirit. While imputed righteousness is a legal righteousness based on the objective historical work of Jesus, which he did for us, for us, practical righteousness is also the work of Jesus, which he does in us by the Holy Spirit. This is done inside of us. Have I mentioned the importance of prepositions? They matter. The work of Christ for us is not the same as the work of Christ in us, but they are never to be separated. Christ's righteousness imputed to us necessarily leads to Christ's righteousness infused in us. 
by the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is making us actually righteous. Michael Horton explains it well. And I quote, through the spirit, all that is done by Christ for us outside of us in the past is received and made fruitful within us in the present. In this way, says Horton, the power that is constitutive of the, of the consummation, the age to come is already at work now in the world through the spirit's agency. Not only is Christ's past work applied to us, but his present status in glory penetrates our own existence in a semi-realized manner. The spirit's work is what connects us here and now to Christ past, present and future. The spirit shapes creaturely reality according to the archetypal image of God. End quote. Let me simplify his words. The spirit has begun a work, the work in us of conforming us into the image of Jesus in preparation for the final glorification of our bodies, at which point the entire work of redemption will be realized. Now, several moments ago, I mentioned that Adam lost his original righteousness, which was an essential aspect of being created in the image of God. The image of God in Adam, as in all of us, has been deeply marred by sin. Now, get this. Jesus Christ is the second Adam, correct? He came to reverse the evil work of the first Adam. What was that evil work? Adam distorted the image of God in us. The second Adam, Jesus Christ, came to do the opposite, to restore the image of God in us. And that is exactly what he did and is doing by the Holy Spirit. Consider with me in Ephesians chapter 4, briefly, verse 24. Consider what God is doing and what he calls us to do. Ephesians 4, 20, 24 says, And to put on the new self, to put on the new self, created after what? After the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. The new self has been recreated in the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. How did this happen? Well, go back to chapter 2, verse 22. How does it happen? In Christ, says Paul, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. We are being created into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The first Adam failed miserably. His disobedience deeply distorted the image of God in us, which is seen primarily in the fact that we lost our original righteousness. The second Adam, however, the Lord Jesus came into this world to powerfully and effectually restore this image by the Holy Spirit who dwells in believers. Jesus Christ is creating us anew once again in the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. What is the evidence of this? Well, the evidence is in chapter five, verse one. What, did, what does Paul calls us, call us to do? Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. By the work of the spirit within us, we can return to our original design, which is to image God, to reflect God in the world, to be imitators of him. What the first Adam lost, the second Adam restored and is restoring in us as we grow more and more into the likeness of the son of God, Jesus Christ, by the work of the Holy spirit. Now by grace, we can be a display of God in the world so that they may give glory to God. 
Christian, let me ask you this. Are you seeing greater love for your spouse? Christ is restoring the image of God in you. Christian, are you seeing greater love for the truth? That is because Christ is restoring the image of God in you. Christian, are you seeing greater desire for holiness? Christ is restoring the image of God in you. Christian, are you seeing greater contentment in Christ? Christ is restoring the image of God in you. Why? Because Christ is preparing us for our final home, the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. So there you have it. We have answered the first question. That is a threefold view of righteousness, original righteousness, imputed righteousness, and practical righteousness. With that introduction, I can begin the sermon. That was not a real laugh. That was like a nervous laugh. (laughs) Now that we have a more comprehensive understanding of righteousness, we can ask, what does this have to do with the armor of God and spiritual warfare? So here's the second main question. And we will keep this brief. Why do we need a breastplate for the spiritual warfare? Here's the, here's the answer. Satan is the slanderer. Therefore he attacks with many accusations. In Greek he's diabolos, the devil, the accuser, the adversary. This is why Paul uses the analogy of the breastplate. It is protective for those living in ancient times. The organs such as the hearts, the lungs, etc., were the place from which our emotions originated. The breastplate worn by a Roman soldier was a perfect analogy because it protected all those main organs, even in the back. Therefore, knowing that this was a common understanding among the people, Paul takes this imagery of the breastplate and he applies it to the Christian and warfare. In other words, Paul is telling us to how to protect ourselves from the discouragements associated with Satan's ongoing accusations. And this opens the door for our third main question. And is this, why is righteousness our breastplate? The answer has to do with Satan's accusations. You must know my beloved brother and sister that Satan's accusations are primarily regarding our standing before God. And let us be honest about this. Few things can bring greater discouragement into our lives than thoughts of inadequate standing before the father. My dear friends, Satan's desire is that you think of yourself, Christian disqualified from God's presence. And he is relentless in his attacks. And let us be even more honest here, brothers and sisters. Many of these accusations are accurate. Are they not? How many times have we wounded our own conscience through sin? And yes, it is true. Many times we do lack in patience. And it is true that many times we respond in anger. And it is true that many times we fall into temptations. And it is true that many times we fail to love our wives, respect our husbands, discipline our children, obey our parents. And Satan often seeks to remind us, remind us of these realities. Therefore, we need the breastplate of righteousness. So we come to the application, which is the obvious question. What is the obvious question? Well, how do we put it on? How do we put on the breastplate of righteousness? I told you a few weeks ago that when it comes to the application of anything related to the armor of God, we need to look at verse 18. What did Paul say in verse 18 of Ephesians 6? Praying at all times. 
It doesn't get any more practical than this, my friends. We cannot take hold of the armor of God apart from prayer in the spirit at all times. This is the key. Prayer is the means by which we appropriate these divine resources that are provided for us in Christ and by the spirit. Therefore, let me say this. Let me give you a warning. Do not pretend to desire to fight this spiritual battle against sin and Satan if you don't make much of prayer in your life. So here's the first thing we must do. Through prayer, through prayer, you must ask God for greater faith in the sufficiency of Christ and his righteousness. Through prayer, you must ask God for greater faith in the sufficiency of Christ and his righteousness. Ultimately, you must know this. The words engraved upon that Masonic lodge are a scheme of the devil against mankind. Satan wants you to believe either of two things. That either your righteousness is enough, your personal righteousness, or he will lead you to despair. How do we make war against that? How do we protect ourselves against these accusations, falsehoods, and lies? Both are fought the same way. We must ask God for greater faith in the sufficiency of Christ and his righteousness. We must not grow weary of looking to Christ, worshiping Christ, knowing Christ and loving Christ. And you must learn and grow to be fully satisfied in who he is and what he has accomplished on your behalf. If you don't do this, you will be constantly susceptible to Satan's discouragements. Our sins, they are many, says the song. Our sins, they are many. How many times have you walked into this sanctuary on a Sunday morning and you're fully discouraged? Right? Why? Because the reality is true. David knew it. My sin is ever present before me. Our sins, they are many. It is true. Our sins are many. Satan's accusations are many. We are prone to discouragement. This is why in just a few moments... We will lift up our voices together as Christians and we will remind ourselves of one of the most essential and beautiful truths of Christianity. This is what we are going to sing in just a few moments. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, what do we do? Inward, I look and see myself there. That's not what it says. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see Jesus there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me, to look on him and pardon me. Here's how this works. At times, the enemy of our souls, our adversary, the accuser will come and say something like this. Look at you, miserable wretch. Look at you. You call yourself a Christian and this is what you do? Just look at you. How do we answer that as Christians? Well, 
Here's how we put on the breastplate of righteousness. While Satan says, look at you, we say, no, I will look to him who lived, who died, and who rose again for me. You see, Christ is my righteousness, which further means this. Are you ready for this? Here's the breastplate of righteousness in action. The day Satan can find fault with Jesus will be the day Satan can bring a charge against us before God. I'm going to repeat that. The day Satan can find fault with Jesus will be the day he can bring a charge against God's elect. That day will never come. For in Jesus, the Father has already told us he is well pleased. And here's the good news. We are one with Christ. Therefore, he is well pleased with us. And letter B, through prayer, we're almost done. You must ask God for greater likeness to Christ Jesus. Through prayer, you must ask God for greater likeness to Christ. Nothing gives Satan greater ammunition for his accusations against us than when we allow for sin to gain greater influence over us. Therefore, we must ask God to continue to conform us into the image of his son. Know this, my Christian friend. Know this. God is beautifying his people by the ongoing work of the spirit. And how do we know that God won't stop working righteousness within us? Here's why. God is committed to the beautification of his people, the church. You know why? Because one day the church will be presented to Christ as his bride in glory. Therefore, get this, the father's love for his own son is the guarantee that the spirit will finish the sanctifying work he started in us. Nothing can break this. And we will see Christ and we will be like him. Let me finish by addressing briefly my unbelieving friends this morning. If you're not a Christian, if you're not a believer this morning, I have to ask you this. Have you come to realize that you have no righteousness of your own? Have you come to see the utter wickedness of your own heart? Have you come to realize that your so-called goodness, the Bible calls filthy rag before a holy God? If yes, if yes, then here's my invitation. Come to Christ Jesus. Come to Christ Jesus. Only Jesus has the righteousness that you desperately need. And if you believe in Christ, and if you trust in his life, his death, and his resurrection, your sins will be forgiven. Your debt will be paid. If this morning, if this morning you can confess that you have nothing but Christ, then you will have everything in Christ. So come to the Lord Jesus today. Would you pray with me?
Father, we thank you for the righteousness that we have, which is not our own righteousness. But it is all Christ's. Father, more than anything, I pray that today, if there was anybody in this room that came trusting in their own righteousness, I pray that they will repent and look to Christ, the only one in human history who could say, I always do what is pleasing to God. And not only that, but he's the one who died for our sins to pay the penalty, to take upon himself the wrath of God and who rose again for our justification. Father, draw many people to the Lord. We ask, Lord, that you will save sinners from darkness and bring them to the light. And for those of us who have already believed, help us to treasure the Lord Jesus even more, that he may be highly exalted in our lives. And now help us to worship you in spirit and in truth as we respond to this word from you. And we do so in faith. In the name of Jesus, amen.